This podcast is sponsored by ReformationSites.com, church websites for a modern Reformation. Listen for a special May offer at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, one of the two usual hosts, uh, professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in wonderful Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Carl, I do want to give just a little bit of a shout out. Um, As you can see, I am drinking from my beautiful mug that the kind folks at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary sent me. So you're not the only one. They are the greatest seminary mugs I've ever seen. It's a fabulous mug. It's heavy. It is um, uh, excellent. It's, it's beautiful. Got their, uh, uh, their logo on there. But um, after you had said such kind things about their mug on air and and I repeated that it's a beautiful mug. Well, like two days later, I got an email um, from someone there who said, hey, we're sending you a mug. And so I'm going to I'm going to plug it again because they might like send me a whole place setting at this point is what I'm <laughs> is what I'm kind of hoping for. But um, I feel more reformed drinking from it. It is the exclusive psalmist mug of choice. Yes, I yes. I, I am all of a sudden say. compelled to sing psalms only as I drink yeah. from it. So uh, you and I have gotten, we've had way too much time uh, together lately because you and I were both in Greenville last week. You were speaking at uh, uh, the annual theology conference at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and I was there not speaking at it, but listening. And yeah. uh, it, was a, it was a good time. You were there to be the butt of my jokes. I, I was I, I was sitting right up front I, just I, with a big sign around my neck saying, hit me. I have to say, our friend Pat Daly came up to me the evening uh-huh. and said, my 10-year-old son was very distressed during the talks. He kept saying to me, Daddy, why is that man being so cruel to the man on the front row? <laughs> I said to Pat, has your son met Todd? And he said, no. I said, well, well, next time introduce him and he will understand why I was. <laughs> well, see that from the heart of a tender, sensitive child, he just knew instinctively that something wrong was happening. So out of the mouth of babes, brother, yeah, out of the yeah, mouth of yeah. babes and children. So, right. Well, Carl, tell us, uh, tell us who we have with us today. Yeah, we actually have uh, uh, as a guest on the program today, former student of mine. There are some former students of mine who have yeah. continued to talk to me over the years. They've not all, uh, repudiated the master, if I could put it that way. This particular student, uh, I I remember well because from the first time I met him, he had a a particular peculiar passion. And the passion was for Bible translation, getting the word translated into languages and language so that ordinary people could understand. I was very interested in, I'd say, the theology of Bible translation and how that connects to pastoral care and pastoral work. 
His name is Carl Davis. He's the executive director of Bible Translation Fellowship. He is an American, but he and his wife uh, moved just a few months ago to South Africa, where he's going to be heading up the Bible Translation Fellowship and working on Bible translations in order to get the Word of God into the hands of people who need it. Kyle, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. Tell us how you became interested in Bible translation. It's not, it's not something that everybody at seminary is interested in. Most of us, we like Bible translations. We assume Bible translations, but it's not something we get technically interested and involved in. How do you get so interested in Bible translation? Yeah, it happened over time. I'm, I'm almost, I'll be 45 this year, and I, I became a believer in my early teens, so almost 30 years ago. And when I first came to faith, the Bible was so instrumental in everything. I didn't come from a Christian background, Christian family. So learning to be a man, uh, uh, then becoming a husband, a godly husband, the scripture was just instrumental at every part of, of my formation, my understanding of who God is and what he called me to, what he wanted me to be. I had an immediate interest in missions as I just read from scripture, Romans 10, and understanding God's heart for the nations. And that interest eventually uh, came to a head when I asked one of my pastors to disciple me. And he said, why don't you come take my Greek class? And I thought that was a bit odd. I just wanted some discipleship, but uh, he, he was willing to teach me Greek. So, as I started learning Greek, I started doing some research and finding that there was 7,300 languages plus in the world, and only about 10% of the languages of the world had uh, a full translation of God's Word. And so, the, wow. the desire for missions then was coupled with, well, the Lord seems in His providence to be giving me free training in Greek, and then opportunity to get great theological training, God's providence, God's provision, all of those things, God's sovereignty came, came together uh, to, to offer me, you know, opportunities for training and access. And so, that was all just over many, many years. Hmm. Well, I'm guessing that that figure of, what did you say, 10%? Yeah, 7,300 plus languages, and just over 700 have a full translation, mm -hmm. meaning Old and New Testament. Yeah. My, my guess would be that a lot of evangelicals would be surprised that they've, like me, would, would have assumed it was much higher than that. Um, and just hearing you cite that statistic um, is um, sobering. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, and, and I understand, so, you know, some of those languages represent, you know, very, very small people groups, but nevertheless, um, 10%, I, I would, if I were guessing, I would have guessed a lot higher. Most than, people do. Yeah. Yeah. A few years ago, a survey was done that around 80% of Americans believed that the Bible existed in every language. Wow. Um, so I think there is just a lot of, uh, back to Carl's point, a lot of people um, go to seminary, go to Bible college thinking, I want to serve the Lord. And they often hear from their professors about, of course, missions or pastoral mm -hmm. ministry, maybe even academic ministry, but they, they often don't hear about Bible translation. And yeah. if they're not hearing about it in the church from their pastor or in the schools from their professors, it does remain a sort of area of ignorance. The other yeah. statistic I would mention, I like to talk about language groups because it's, it's, it's a clear data point. Mm -hmm. If you talk about populations, 
you know, well, aren't the, the majority world languages like Spanish and Portuguese and French and these kind of languages, don't they cover the majority population of the world? In one way, they do. In another way, they don't, because the, that data relies on people being multilingual and, and knowing a language where they talk about things, uh, moral things, spiritual things, ethical things in their own language, in the language that they grew up in, instead of the language that they learned to just go buy vegetables at the market or right. get some education in. So, this idea of multilingualism is very important when it comes to Bible translation. Yeah. Um, in terms of your organization, Bible Translation Fellowship, um, uh, could you give us an idea uh, on some of the languages you're, you're currently working on in terms of translation? We're very small, so I'm the only person on staff, although we do have partners. We have a mm -hmm. partner that is sent out by a different sending agency, but they, they collaborate with us because they believe in our philosophy that Bible translation should be integrated with the mission of the church, mm -hmm. um, the mission being church planning, church strengthening. Mm -hmm. So, um, we, there's a couple in Cameroon. Uh, working on a minority language there. There's a couple that's currently raising support that would like to be on the field. And then I am pursuing what's called translation consulting. Uh, translation consulting means that I work with numerous languages at a time. So although I'm based in South Africa, I'll regularly be flying to and doing video calls with languages in Tanzania, in Ethiopia, in Nigeria. So just just this week, I'm working with a cluster of three languages in Tanzania. So, as a translation consultant, you work with 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 many different languages. Yep. Now, Kyle, one question I'd like to ask is: presumably, if there are so many languages that have not yet been reached by Bible translation, some of them at least must only exist as spoken languages. Presumably, they are not written down. How do you address the problem of Bible translation? into a language that has no alphabet, that has no you know, textual representation on, the pap on paper? Yeah, great question. This is a, a huge issue in the history of Bible translation, as well as a current modern uh, issue going on. There's a whole movement called oral Bible translation, where the team would work together orally and record the, the translation that's happening as they're discussing and talking, but historically you would send in a missionary who would learn the language, document the sounds into an alphabet, create a dictionary, and then work, start working on translating. And then they over time would teach the, the mother tongue speakers to read their own language. So historically there's always been a high growth in literacy, literacy wherever Protestant missionaries have gone because there has been the need to teach I'm very concerned that the, with the movement to, to purely, you know, to in some ways jettison the literacy movement and, and sort of just go all in with oral Bible storing and orality movement and chronological Bible storing that's purely oral and now oral Bible translation. It does in some ways start to move away from the written word and the many commands that God gives that his own prophets uh should record in writing, you know, God has chosen a medium for the distribution of his word. And it's the written word that is then spoken, uh, right? In the confessional tradition, we have the, the word read, preached, prayed, sung, and seen in the ordinances. Do you find you get any pressure or criticism from within the church for that? Because of course, when, when a culture becomes literate, 
it is transformed. The, the, you know, an oral culture and a literate culture are two quite different things. Are you finding within the church voices saying we shouldn't be doing this because when you create a written language for a culture, you are disrupting, you are damaging, you are westernizing that culture in some way? I think I'm feeling that pressure more in the missions and Bible translation community, that the people that are sent out as missionaries and as Bible translators are saying those kinds of things. Let's not, you know, they're an oral people. I, I read one author who was big on orality saying the oral mind can never understand the logic of Romans. We can only give people narrative portions of scripture. Let's just mm -hmm. tell stories uh, one author says, give the parable, but don't teach the meaning of the parable, which goes right against uh, Mark 4, yeah, uh, that yeah. the parables for those on the outside and the teaching and explanation is for those who want yeah. to follow Christ. So, I don't know if it's the church in terms of you know, particular congregations, but certainly those whom the church are sending into missions and Bible translation, I have many concerns uh, about that for the same things that you said. Oh, we're... Yeah. You're, you're Western, you're literate, you're trying to push, you're colonizing and, and these mm. kinds of things. And yet, you know, up until relatively recently in the West, literacy was not universal. Most Christians throughout right. most of church history anywhere would only have heard the letter to the Romans. They would not have read it. They would only have heard it. So those arguments are sort of, they're interesting on the grounds, well, well how's, the, how's the logic and the, and the theology of Romans been passed down? They're not historical, exactly. Yeah. And, and in my yeah. own personal experience, I, I don't love reading. I would rather watch the movie. <laughs> right. uh, but when God saved me, he gave us a book, and that was yeah. his chosen means. And his chosen means to then have the book read and preached and prayed and sung. And yes, seen in the ordinances, but not in films, yeah. not yeah. in drama. Yeah. And, and it's very concerning. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I remember when the... Um, back in the nineties when the emergent movement really got going and you had guys like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and others saying, well, you know, we're in a generation now that values um, the visible over the written. We have a generation now that, that prefers um, drama over didactic. And, you know, I got to thinking about that and think, well, every generation prefers those things. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I mean, that's, that's Israel the base of Mount Sinai saying, we don't want more words from Moses. We want a God like the nations have. We want a God that you can touch and is right up in your face. We want an experiential emotive religion. Meanwhile, Moses is up there on the mountain, bringing us more words. I can only assume that seemed a lot that, that just seemed very boring compared to the religion of the nations. And of course we understand how that worked out. And, and so, you know, what I'm hearing from you is encouraging in terms of what your philosophy is that uh, you don't want to separate Bible translation um, from the actual doctrine of the scripture and what God says about the means that he uses, the primary means he uses to actually speak to his people. That makes a lot of sense. That's exactly right. And in fact, this is what I'm writing my PhD dissertation on is a theology of Bible translation mm. that, that derives from uh, a robust confessionally reformed yeah. doctrine of the word and the written word spoken. God has always provided for his people. If we talk about the audience in modern Bible translation, the audience is usually unbelievers or women and children, because in many of these languages, it's women and children who are the least educated. And so that is the target 
quote unquote, reading or listening audience. But in the regular principle of worship, God has always provided for his people, even when they can't read or don't have access to written scriptures. When you come to the gathering, you hear the word read, preached, prayed, sung, and seen in the ordinances. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned how, you know, one of the distinctives that you all are committed to is not separating Bible translation from the mission um, of the church. And I think that's a good reminder because not every Bible translation group or society or ministry um, is necessarily um, strongly tethered um, to a church or the church. That's correct, isn't it? Yes. And many of the broad mission agencies and translation agencies are, you know, are trying to collaborate and work together. So you end up with a sort of broader vision. I know people have applied to a certain translation agency saying, we want to plan a church. The end goal is not a scripture product that nobody uses. The end goal is scripture that is used in the life and ministry of a local church. And they're turned away from the translation agency Mm. because they can say, well, we don't plant churches. Meanwhile, if they apply to a church planning agency, they can say, well, we don't translate the Bible. So it has been challenging for missionaries to find the right agencies where they can do both or work with a team. It's not that one person has to have all the gifts of what I call being a pastor translator, but um, you need on your team those who are doing evangelism and then pastoring and planting and strengthening churches with those who are doing the language work and translating. Yeah, well. How do you pause the old discussion between sort of literal and dynamic equivalence translation, Kyle? Obviously, all translation is to some extent dynamic equivalence. There's no one-to-one correspondence between words in one language and words in another. But for your organization, what sort of philosophy do you operate with? Yeah, that would take a whole nother episode, right? <laughs> and it's it's often, it's sort in, of... In, in, in two sentences, I want you to <laughs> yeah. think about this. In some ways, it's sort of an intra-English conversation. It's not that the principles don't apply into other languages, but some of that debate is limited to to English translations. We have over 400 English translations. I I would turn the conversation to say, who is the proper audience? The audience is the church. It's not the unbeliever. Scripture is translated for the church and specifically for the gathered church. And in that way, you start to make a whole host of translation decisions. So that, that, that would be my philosophy, translated by the church, that is by Christians, overseen by spiritual leaders, elder qualified kind of leaders, missionaries, by the church and for the church. And, and that would be our, our translation philosophy, which comes with a whole host of when do you do footnotes? If you're choosing to do something literal or non-literal, and then you want to give an explanation, do you put that in the text? Oh, now it's dynamic. Do you put yeah. it in a footnote? You know, so all those decisions are, are not just based around how tight it is to the grammar and the structure and the discourse of, you know, of Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, but it's also decisions about who the audience is. And so that's why I, I, I want to say it's, I want to change that whole conversation. Who is it by? It's by the church. Who is it for? It's for the church. Yeah. Does that apply to your choice of underlying text as well? Because I've heard some argue that that's why we should re- use the received text. The, the, the scholarly Nestle Allen text is a kind of scholarly hodgepodge, if you like. Uh, and we should actually allow our ecclesiology to shape which text we choose. I'm not 
persuaded by that, but I wonder if that is part of your thinking as well. I'm not sure I would go there. I think the team that is translating has to come to high agreement, just like a team that's planning a church would have to have high theological agreement. There would be some agencies that say we only work with the TR. Right. Um, right. And they would then, that would prevent some people from joining them. Um, I I think it's a team level and that team needs to be overseen by a sending church or a group of sending churches. Got you. In terms of the amount of work that goes into it, say for your organization, um, and again, I know it might differ from language to language, but in general, is it even possible to answer this question of um, how much time is involved, like to get a Bible, either all of the scriptures or or one book of the Bible into um, a language that it hasn't been translated into? What are we talking about there as far as time? And, and even if you have an estimate of, you know, what does this cost? Because, you know, you've got resources, you've got people involved. I wonder if you could give our folks just a little bit of an idea, a general idea of the kind of commitment of resources that goes into this work. Yeah, the first thing I want to say that the commitment from the church is just from Matthew 9, the harvest is plenty and the labors are few. There, mm-hmm. there, we need more confessionally reformed solid, well-trained, godly, humble men and women serving at the intersection of Bible translation and church planning and church strengthening. And that commitment has to be to the end until churches are planted. And then once the church is planted, they keep being strengthened. And so historically, you're talking 20 or more years, sometimes just 20 years for a New Testament. And then no old, I mean, I mentioned that over 700 languages have a full Bible, but about 1,500 have a New Testament. So, mm-hmm. half the number of languages still don't have an Old Testament that have a New Testament. That 20-year figure is, is much shorter now because a lot of the languages that were translated are spoken by massive number of people. So, take like India, where Hindi would already be translated. And now people who know Hindi and also know their mother tongue, a smaller minority language, they can start with the Hindi translation. I think it's a little known fact that most people in America probably think Bible translators are starting with Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and that is almost never the case. Most people are translating from a translation, be it English, French, Hindi, Portuguese, Spanish, Mandarin. So it is going faster now. Um, you know, uh, under 10 years in New Testament and or Old Testament, depending on the stability of the team. The Seed Company is a subsidiary of Wycliffe Bible Translators. They have taken on a project model funding where they're trying to get people to donate this much and they've this much and you'll translate a verse. And so they have yeah. some of those numbers. Uh, I don't have those numbers on the top of my head, but uh, it really depends on the stability of the team and the training and uh, what they're using and the resource. Do they even have a computer? Are they still writing this out? I mean, there's just so many levels yeah. to the time and the funding. Mm-hmm. When you when you think about pioneer areas or at least language groups that have very little, if any, Christian witness, um, what would be your approach in terms of what do you translate first? What, what's the first thing you want to try to get into their language of the books of the Bible? You know, this is a very interesting area that goes back to the philosophy of ministry as well. So if mm-hmm. you're saying that we're going to translate for the church, uh, you guys were joking around at the beginning about, you know, being Psalter only singers. Well, the Psalms yeah. 
to my knowledge, Calvin wanted to see the Psalter as one of the first books translated mm-hmm. in the French Bible. But nowadays, the Psalms are almost last because poetry is so difficult to translate. So, usually people take on a gospel, often Luke, because, well, we got to get the Jesus film out and that's more powerful. Video is more powerful. So, let's get Luke. We can move on to Jesus film, maybe go to Acts, and then you do the New Testament and then you start to do some narrative portions of the Old Testament. But if we're, again, if we're not translating for unbelievers, first and foremost, but we're translating for the church, even if it's the future church, then we want to provide songs for the church yeah. to sing. We want the Psalter. We, we don't want just narrative portions of the Old Testament. Yeah. So, I do think there needs to be more thought in terms of translation programs, the ordering of books. Uh, if, if as many translation organizations either assume or explicitly state that Bible translation is kind of this evangelistic endeavor or evangelistic tract that then takes on an ordering of books right, but if right. it's for the church that would take a different ordering of the books and i would i would move yeah. in that other direction yeah. I, so take zambia for example uh conrad and is one of our advisory board members okay. as i spoke with him you know why would we send a foreigner out into some tribal language of zambia when there's a whole network of Reformed churches, Reformed Baptist churches that are all over. And, you know, he would say, no, let's send evangelists. Mm-hmm. We can preach the gospel before we have written scriptures. Yeah. Let's preach the gospel orally. If people are start coming to faith, well, now we're in the work of planting a church. And now we move into Bible translation. Yeah. And I think that's much more sound in terms of the order, the ordering. And then that would, that would influence the ordering of the books as well. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, already, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing things uh, today uh, for the first time, and it's been fascinating. I mean, this is a discussion that, uh, uh, that we could uh, go on at length for, and maybe in a future program, we might have to, uh, to kind of put a, a part two for this because the, the discussion is fascinating. And, and I'm just, as a pastor, I, wheels are turning in my head about how to frame this for the church. And it, when I talk to people about considering ministry, um, I now uh, have better handles on how to talk to them about the possibility of, have you thought about going into um, Bible yes. translation as a church yes. planter? And so this Amen. is really That's been, one of our biggest needs is pastors yeah. praying publicly from the pulpit in their pastoral yeah. prayer and giving sermon applications, calling mm-hmm. people either to go, you know, to go and give their yeah. life, young teens who are doing classical Christian education and learning Latin and Greek and all these things. Yeah. Or those who are going to stay and be good senders, uh, but right. we need we need the church praying and sending and going. Well, if you're a pastor listening to us, um, please take that to heart. If you're someone listening to us um, who who can't go, and you're at a stage in life where you're you, you know you can't go and you can't become a translator, but you can pray for and give uh, financial support, then um, pray about that. Consider that. Um, if you're a pastor, challenge your your folks. Challenge your your young people who are considering um, vocational ministry, um, challenge them to think about this as a part of a, uh, a vision for missions and church planting. Um, so our, our guest has been Kyle Davis. Again, he's the executive director of the Bible Translation Fellowship, um, which uh, is based there in uh, South Africa. What part of South Africa are you in, Kyle? We're, we're based in California okay, as you're an based organization. In okay. Yes, but I'm just south of Cape Town. Okay. A website? For y'all? 
BibleTranslationFellowship.org. Bible you can see Carl's face. Oh, nice. Are you and and you deliberately put his face on there, like it wasn't an accident or. Anything it's a great, like it's a great way to raise money. You know, <laughs> people will pay to have my face removed from websites. <laughs> right. We're leaving this face up until we reach our yes. goals. So that's yes. that's a good approach. Well, well, listen. Check out their website, BibleTranslationFellowship.org. Um, you can read more about their their ministry. Uh, if if you're like me, um, Kyle's uh, appeal for a church planting based approach to Bible translation makes enormous sense. And uh, you can go to our website, mortificationofspin.org. We'll have a link um, to Bible Translation Fellowship that you can follow and, and read more about their ministry. Um, also, uh, uh, we're going to be giving away copies of uh, Vern Poitras's book, In the Beginning Was the Word, Language, a God-Centered Approach. And uh, I'm sh- it is a book that I have read portions of, and it's very interesting in terms of uh, how God uh, has determined to use language. And it goes back to some of the things we've already discussed in this podcast, but you can enter to win a copy of that. And if you are so moved, uh, you can make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that we can continue to provide content like this for you. And uh, again, Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the work you're doing and for informing us so well today. We very much appreciate that. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Absolutely. Well, to our listeners, thank you for the time listening, and we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Okay, well, are we ready to uh, start recording? I'm always Wait. ready. Anything you want to know before we start, Kyle? We'll be happy for all five of the confessionally reformed pastors that listen to your podcast to think about Bible translation. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Did you know that most people view a church's website before they'll ever step foot in the door? So how's your church's site? Would an online visitor searching for a church home find it inviting? Does it reflect your ministry as it should? Perhaps it's time to start a new site for your church that reaches out more effectively with a design that engages visitors while keeping members connected. Reformation Sites has beautiful, mobile-ready designs to choose from, helpful service, and useful features such as sermon manager, online bulletins, ministries, books, and notifications. It also integrates with other popular services like sermon audio, live streaming, and online giving with pricing that fits into any church budget. In the month of May, we're offering 15% off the website setup fee. 
Get started by using coupon code RS15 when you go to ReformationSites.com. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern Reformation.